0: Welcome to this podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina, and I am actually at the building called First Baptist Church this week. I've returned back to North Carolina and uh, anticipate being here a while, so glad to uh, be speaking to you once again. This is uh, Dr. Chuck McGathey. If you've not already met me, I'm glad that you're now part of our podcast audience. We uh, have been doing this uh, since the pandemic took over, and uh, of course we all realized that was when basketball was canceled uh, for a while. That got, that got our attention, and uh, so we've been ever since then doing a podcast uh, through this service, so thank you for tuning in. I hope it is a blessing to you as we do this. Uh, this coming Sunday is the uh, fifth Sunday of Pentecost. It will be July 10th. You might be hearing this before or after that event. That's the beauty of podcasting. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't require you to be there exactly at the moment. Uh, you might be up in the middle of the night listening to this, and that's okay, too. Whatever you do to connect with the living God is important and, um, and honored. God uh, meets you right where you are. So thank you for joining in with us. The theme of this service today, this message today, is is neighborliness Christian. And uh, we're looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture, which is found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, 25 through 37. And if you would, I'd like to read that a couple different ways. I always like to do it a couple different ways so that we might be able to absorb it a little bit better. The whole point of this is to uh, give you a way of really considering God's Word, to really think about what it says. A lot of people are waving the Bible around today. Waving the Bible doesn't mean you understand the Bible. To understand the Bible, you have to read it. You have to think about it. You have to ponder it. It's a pretty challenging book. You might find there's some things in there that, hmm, well, they speak to us. We might need a little bit of a tune-up from time to time, and on occasion we may need a major repair, but the Bible is there for us because God is speaking to us through his words recorded in the Bible. These words are recorded in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It is what is often termed, the parable of the Good Samaritan. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind as your neighbor and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and took off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Is neighborliness Christian? Sometimes the question has been posed as a sort of values inquiry. If you were stranded upon a desert island and could only have one book with you, which book would you have? Well, that answer may be a bit too obvious in this crowd, I suspect. Actually, I hope that for most of us, the answer would be the Bible. After all, don't we gather or tune in every week to better understand its contents so that we may more closely follow the Lord? What if, however, we made that question just a bit more challenging? What if you could only select one book out of the 66 books that comprise the Bible? Then which book would you select? I am again hopeful that your choice might be one of the gospel books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John each tell the story of Jesus in their own way. And quite honestly, I'd hate to have to choose among them to select just one to inspire my need of faith. You might choose your gospel because it includes parables of Jesus. You would, in fact, be in good company. It was the parables he taught that so captivated the people of Judah. For me, the choice would be the gospel according to Luke. In it, there are two parables that are most precious and which I think express the essence of our religion clearly and powerfully. The first is the parable of a prodigal son that expresses the grace relationship God wants to have toward us. The other is the parable of a good man who happened to be a despised Samaritan. In this story, Jesus describes the way we are to be with one another, the parable Jesus told about a man being attacked and left for dead on the Jericho Road is just as relevant today as it was when Jesus first spoke it. We may read it in Luke 10:25 through 37 Here it is from a different translation. A lawyer got up and put Jesus on the spot. Teacher, he said, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Well, replied Jesus, what is written in the law? What's your interpretation of it? You shall love the Lord your God, he replied, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your understanding, and your neighbor as yourself. Well said, replied Jesus, do that and you'll live. Ah! <laughs> said the lawyer wanting to win the point, but who is my neighbor? Jesus rose to the challenge. Once upon a time, he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was set upon by brigands. They stripped him and beat him and ran off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he went past on the opposite side. So too, a Levite came by the place. He saw him too and went past on the opposite side. But a traveling Samaritan came to where he was. When he saw him, he was filled with pity. He came over to him and bound him up bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put him on his own beast, took him to an inn, and looked after him. The next morning, as he was going on his way, he gave the innkeeper two dinars. Take care of him, he said, and on the way back, I'll pay you whatever else you need to spend on him. Which of these three do you think turned out to be the neighbor of the man who was set upon by the brigands? The one who showed him mercy came to reply. Well, Jesus said to him, you go and do the same. I suspect this is not the first time you've heard these words. In fact, I can reasonably assume that most of you have not only heard these words, but you've spoken them yourself as you have relayed this parable to Jesus, this parable of Jesus. Perhaps, You've referred to it in conversation or told a young child or reminded yourself. You have known and shared the story, nicknamed the Good Samaritan, countless times. It is an important part of our Christian culture. It is the epitome of what Jesus tells us we should be in relationship with each other. And it all started with a single question, Who is my neighbor? Jesus' answer to that question is as earth-shattering today as it was in the first century. It was more than some honey, heartwarming story. It was an on-the-spot ethical challenge that demanded courage and truth on the part of the teller and humility and repentance on the part of the hearer. Let's look at it a bit more closely, and you will see why. Did you notice that as the story concludes the story through which Jesus answered the question, who is my neighbor, that the man does not answer directly. When Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, the lawyer could not bring himself to say, the Samaritan. Instead, acknowledging that such an act of kindness could be done by a Samaritan, he confines his answer to merely describing what the man from Samaria had done. Why did he do that? To answer that question, we need to know something about the Samaritans. They say, and I believe it is true, that we bear our deepest enmity for those who are closest to us. That is certainly true in the relations that existed between Samaritans and the Jews of Jesus' day. Not only did they live smack in the middle of the Jewish nation, they practiced a religion that was in some ways similar to Judaism, but different enough to cause intense division and conflicts. If you have a map in your Bible, You can find the Samaritan region about halfway between Jerusalem and Nazareth. The two main cities were Samaria and Sychar, and in between them was the mountain called Gerizim. In 721 BC, the Jewish inhabitants of this area were forcibly removed into foreign exile by the Assyrian king Sargon. 44 years later, another Assyrian king resettled the area of Samaria with other people who were not the original inhabitants. These foreign strangers eventually mixed with the Jews who had not been taken into exile and formed a hybrid religion by doing away with their old idolatry and adopting a partly Jewish religion. Now that is where the difficulty arose. You see, the Jews, the ones who had been exiled, returned to their homeland, more deeply committed than ever before to keeping their religion pure. And once they came back, they discovered these religious half-breeds were already there. In response, they excluded them from rebuilding the temple and from participating in worship. This created strife. In response, the Samaritans built their own temple atop Mount Gerizim. That temple was destroyed by a Jewish king about 125 years before Jesus' birth. So the Samaritans built another temple, this time at Shechem. Their stubborn resistance to the Jews... Continued, and by the time of Jesus' ministry, it could easily be said, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And as anyone who has ever visited the Middle East might observe, one way of treating an enemy is to refuse to use his name. That is why the lawyer in this story does not refer to the Samaritan, but only to the one who showed him mercy. For us, the word Samaritan does not conjure up a negative image. We think of a selfless helper who goes out of his way to care for one for another. We have no problem with this parable when we think of its protagonist because we do not hear it as that Jewish lawyer did. But what if we change the characters a bit? How then will we react? Could it be there is something we might have we might be challenged with as we think of this story in the same terms as a Jesus originally taught it? Well, let's see. Let's begin by making the traveler a Christian, no better yet, an American Christian. Let's say he is a patriot, a veteran, well-versed in the political culture of his day. He's taking a trip to Atlanta when he stops at a gas station late at night. As he fuels up, buys a cup of coffee and pays the clerk and heads out to his truck. Before he can get inside the cab, he is jumped by a couple of men. He is badly beaten, and his truck is stolen. The first person who happens along is a preacher. He sees him, but preferring not to get involved, steers clear of the beaten stranger. Next, along is a deacon. Same response. Then along comes a fellow with a beard and some strange headwear. He speaks with a Middle Eastern accent. He is a Muslim. This man, however, does not avoid the man, but rushes to him. He carries him to the doctor and gets him a room at a local hotel and then covers the bill. And then the question, which of these proved to be his neighbor? Perhaps we, too, would have a tough time with this story. If you do, then you know just how the first hearers felt. That is the way, though, that Jesus wanted this story to be understood. It is meant to rock us out of our prejudices and pride and make us see folks through God's perspective. You see, it is far easier to talk the talk than it is to walk the walk. Yet Jesus demands that our actions validate our faith. This was literally put to the test once at seminary. At a seminary, a Seattle pastor relays this fascinating account. I remember that day about a test being given at the Harvard Divinity School. It could be at any divinity school, but this test was at Harvard. It was a very clever test. Now, when you go to Harvard, you have to be smart. And these smart theological students took a course entitled Christians and Society. The professor had created a test that was three hours long. It was a tough test on being a moral Christian in an immoral society. Halfway through the test, he arranged for a break where the students could take a 10-minute break. The students were to leave the room for 10 minutes, get fresh air, and then come back and take the last hour and a half of the test. The students were writing as fast and as furiously as they could, writing down all their knowledge of morality. What does it mean to be a moral person in an immoral society? But now it was break time, and the students went out into the courtyard where there was iced tea and cookies. Out there in the courtyard was another part of the test, although the students didn't know it. This was the real test. There was a man all beaten up there in the courtyard. He was there and the students looked at him and drank their tea and ate their cookies and said to themselves, what should we do? We have this test to take. All the students went back into the classroom to finish the written part of the test. The professor flunked them all. Do you understand? Do you understand the real test? So often the church of Jesus Christ flunks the real test in real life because we are so busy with our classes inside the four walls of the church. The real test are on the Jericho Road. You see, following Christ is more than an academic intellectual exercise. It means that we roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. It means that we take risk with people and we love people without promise of reward. And why do we do these things? We do these things because when we do, we are following Jesus. And since Jesus did not lay down a barrier of neighborliness on the condition of orthodox belief, neither should we. We too should consider that whenever we are tempted to exclude, condemn, or vilify another individual or group, even a religious group, with whom we do not agree, then we are not following Jesus. Fred Craddock tells an amazing story about how he learned this lesson. As a young man, he had an opportunity to confront a liberal theologian whom he believed had gone off the theological deep end. Listen as he recollects the story. I think I was 20 years old when I read Albert Schweitzer's quest for the historical Jesus. I found his Christology woefully lacking. More water than wine. I marked it up wrote in the margins, raised questions of all kinds. And one day, one day, I read in the Knoxville News Sentinel that Albert Schweitzer was going to be in Cleveland, Ohio, to play the dedicatory concert for a big organ in the big church up there. According to the article, he would remain afterward in the fellowship hall for conversation and refreshment. Craddock bought a bus ticket and worked out his questions, carefully writing them all down against the chance he would have some time to corner Schweitzer during the reception. I went there, I heard the concert, I rushed into the fellowship hall and got a seat in the front row and waited with my questions in my lap. After a while, he came in, shaggy hair, big white mustache, stooped and 75 years old. You know, he was... A master organist, medical doctor, philosopher, biblical scholar, lecturer, writer, and everything. He came in with a cup of tea and some refreshments and stood in front of the group, and there I was, close. Dr. Schweitzer thanked everybody. You've been very warm, hospitable toward me. Thank you for it, and I wish I could stay longer among you, but I must go back to Africa. I must go back to Africa because my people are poor and diseased and hungry and dying. And I have to go. We have a medical station there. If there's anyone here in this room who has the love of Jesus, would you be prompted by that love to go with me and help me? I looked down at my questions, they were so absolutely stupid, and I learned again what it means to be a Christian and had hopes that I could be that someday. When I was a teenager, we used to sing a simple song. I say simple, the words were simple, but the theology was profound. The chorus said, and they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So if we follow him, we will love those who we never thought we could love. Ed Markhart is a Lutheran pastor who tells a remarkable story that illustrates this. In 1980, Grace Lutheran Church had just sponsored 25 Asian refugee families. They were preparing these people for baptism by teaching them the parables of Jesus. They were role-playing the parables, acting them out. Then came the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, everyone in the class was Laotian except for Tran Nguyen family, who were Vietnamese. The Vietnamese and Laotian people often hated each other right after the Vietnam War. So that day, the pastor took a Laotian put him on the ground, and wrapped him all up with bandages, had him moaning like he had just been beaten up. All the class was laughing. They understood the role play. First, an older Laotian mother came by, and she bowed graciously, looked down at the injured Laotian, patting him, and moved on. Then a Laotian man came by, looked closely, and left a nickel for the injured person and moved on. The pastor had three or four people come by, look, and move on. And then... To everyone's surprise, he asked Tran Nguyen to come by. And Tran picked up the Laotian and took him to his home and cared for him. Then he asked the members of the class, Do you understand the meaning of Jesus's parable? They nodded that they did. We are to love and care for our enemies. Later, and this was the key insight, saw sophet the leader of the Laotian community said privately to to him, You know, pastor, that is why many of us find it so difficult to become Christians. The stumbling block for us is not the resurrection. The stumbling block for us is not the cross. The stumbling block for us is to love our enemies. That is asking too much from us who have just come back from war. You know what? That Laotian man had it right. The tough part of being a Christian isn't believing the right things. It is doing the right things. That's where the rubber meets the Jericho road. If we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then we have discovered the truth of our faith. And they will know we are Christians by our love. The question that must be asked, is neighborliness Christian? I think that Jesus saw it that way, do we? Let us pray. Lord, give us the kind of love that reaches across the barriers of human pride and division. May we seek and find opportunities this week to be a neighbor to someone who may not expect it from us. Help us treat others with respect and dignity and so illustrate illustrate that we are truly your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.